Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Hear me okay? Great. You don't need microphones, right? Tikvot Israel, leadership here, they asked me to give a message again. I've done this a few times, and when I've done it, I, I, I get feedback from people. Some of the feedback I get is this, is that, Lewis, with your messages, you don't have any stories in your messages. You need a personal story about yourself so the audience can connect with you about your personal experiences. You've got to tell them about that. And uh, Yeshua, he taught with stories and parables, so you should use some stories too. Okay. So you want to hear a story? Yeah. All right. A few years back, me and my wife, we, we take this drawing class together, right? And so the teacher of the drawing class tells us, uh, bring in something, like pick out something, bring it into the class, and draw a picture of it. And so I go, okay, so I'll pick out something. So I got my car. My car's, you know, pretty cluttered and stuff. And uh, in, in the floor of my car was this bent, mashed-up Dixie cup uh, drinking, plastic drinking cup thing. And so I go, okay, that kind of looks cool. I'll just take that, and I'll bring it in, and I'll draw a picture of it. And other people, they, they bring in other picture, things to draw pictures of. And the things they bring in are kind of nice and neat and clean and linear. And I got this mashed up, bent up plastic cup that I'm going to draw a picture of. And so I'm working on this thing in the class and the, trying to get all the creases and the contours and the lines and the folds just right because it's kind of a gnarled looking thing. And the, the teacher, she notices me, the instructor notices me really working on this thing and says, wow. You think you might want to work on something a little, little different that's easier? You know, I'm like, no, I'm fine. And my wife, she looks at the teacher, and he says, I mean, my wife, she says to the teacher, he likes a challenge. <laughs> this week's parasha is parasha kititsa, parasha kititsa. And in this parasha, there was a passage I saw, a selection that I like that plastic Dixie cup, I thought it was kind of nice. You might want to draw on it, might want to try to render it just right. But like that cup, it's got its folds and its contours and its weird lines, so it'd be kind of hard to render it just right and to figure out just right. But I like a challenge. And the challenge that I'm taking on today is to argue for, to try to explain and might be too much to say I can convince you of these things, but at least make you amenable to the plausibility of three very challenging points that we encounter in Scripture. Point number one is that our Lord is particular. He likes particular things. He likes particular places. And even at times, he will be particular with people, and he will give people special treatment and things that he will not give to other people. That's point one, challenging point number one. Point number two is that this particularity that the Lord shows is good, that it's necessary for our welfare, maybe even for our very existence, point two. And that number three, that you need, for the sake of your own spiritual welfare, to be okay with this particularity that the Lord shows when the Lord gives some, something to somebody else that he does not give to you, that you need to be okay with that. Three challenging points. 
And that's a lot to swallow. And it's like, Lewis, I hope you're going somewhere with this. Well, like I said, I like a challenge, right? Uh, I wonder if we're going to have this on the overhead. If you, you can either turn to your Bibles or see if we can get this right on the overhead, these slides here. That's, you know, that's good and legible. Okay. Starting with Exodus 30. Verses 22 through 29, we read the following. Moreover, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Now take for yourself the best spices, 500 shekels of flowing myrrh, half as much sweet cinnamon, 250, also 250 shekels of sweet, sweet calamus, 500 of cassia, after the sanctuary shekel. The shekel being a unit of weight at this time. It wasn't a currency or a coin or anything. Plus a hint of olive oil. You are to make a holy anointing oil from it, a fragrant mixture blended as the work of a perfumer. It will be holy anointing oil. You are to anoint the tent of meeting with it, the ark of the testimony, as well as the table and all its articles, the menorah and its articles, the altar of incest, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin along with its stands. You are to consecrate them so that they will be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy." You are to anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may minister to me as Kohanim. Speak to B'nai Israel, saying, This is to be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It must not be poured on human flesh, nor are you to make any like it with its formula. It is holy, and it must be holy to you. Whoever mixes any like it, or whoever puts any of it on anyone unauthorized, will be cut off from his people. Okay. So we get we have this interesting. Too, I like. Too, I thought this was interesting. Here you have this very interesting selection out of Parsha Kitzah that we learn something that's quite remarkable. That remember we, as we've discussed in past messages in the past few weeks, and on and off, that the Lord is going to dwell in this tabernacle. He's actually going to live in this tabernacle. The Lord, the creator of the universe, he is going to live in this tabernacle as a next-door neighbor, so to speak, to all of Israel and its wanderings. He's actually going to live here. And so he's instructing Moses, along with details about the, the structure, he's instructing Moses on how he wants his residence, his dwelling place, to smell. Things like some of us, so we, in our houses, we have potpourri or scented candles. Well, the Lord wants that, too. He wants a particular nice, pleasant odor in his residence where he is going to dwell. And we learn something quite remarkable, that he gives the recipe and the formula for concocting the odor, that his favorite odor that he wants to smell in the place that he's going to live. We get the ingredients, we get the proportions, we get the recipe here. Now, our first instinct when we hear this, when we get the recipe for this thing, is like, wow, we got to go out and get some of this stuff or make some of this stuff because this is the stuff the Lord's, if the Lord loves it, it's got to be good. I mean, we can get it for our place. We can get it for, for our, our, apply it to ourselves or our bodies or, or apply it to our house, right? Wrong. <laughs> the commandment says, do not make any like it or you will be cut off. This anointing oil goes only in one place in all of the earth. That's the tabernacle. And it only goes on one kind of people, the priests, the sons of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. It's a little, kind of a little like the fruit in the Garden of Eden, right? That you can try to get some of this stuff thinking, oh, if I get this, I'll be closer to God, I'll be more godly. But no, the, the opposite's going to happen. You will be cut off from the Lord. So it's a little like that. Now, for those of us who have kind of a skeptical squint to things, this might seem a little strange, right? 
maybe even a little, what the Lord's doing, a little unfair, maybe even unjust. Maybe for some of us it might even seem scandalous that the Lord acts this way. Why do I use the word scandalous? Well, because there's this term that philosophers, that uh, theologians, that biblical scholars that they've used over the years to describe this sort of pattern, this sort of behavior that they see in Scripture when God acts this way. They call it the scandal of particularity. I think that's kind of spooky, the scandal of particularity. What is a scandal of particularity, you ask? Uh, Well, it's this observation about God in the Bible and how he acts, that when he speaks, when he acts, when he appears to people, when he gives people revelation, he tends to do so very locally. He does so to one particular place, the ancient Near East, maybe one particular era, this 1,600-year time window between about 1,500 B.C.E. and 100 C.E., right, back in the ancient times. And he does it to one particular type of people, which is, who are the Israelites, the, the Jewish people. And he gets even more particular because he incarnates himself into one person, Yeshua HaMashiach, he, who, when he was on the earth, he lived and dwelled in one place in one time, as one individual man among one society, Second Temple Judaism around first century CE, early Roman Empire, that during that period. Now, for many of us here that we live in a liberal, egalitarian, cosmopolitan, technological, modern world, this may seem uh, to, unjust to the point of being scandalous. Why is the Lord only appearing to one people? Why doesn't he appear to everybody? Why doesn't he talk to everybody? Why was he only doing stuff in this one era during the Bible? Why doesn't he just talk? Why doesn't he come everywhere, any any time, in any place? This doesn't seem, some people might think this doesn't seem fair or that this doesn't seem to make much sense according to human understanding and human ways of thinking about things. And so when we encounter this, this pattern, this behavior by the Lord, like all scandals that we might be tempted to try to sweep it under the rug if we don't understand what's going on. And there's one particular way of trying to sweep it under the rug is that we say is that the people uh, in uh, throughout in throughout church history they'll say the following. They'll say the Lord he used to act this way, but he doesn't do it anymore. That we are under a new covenant. And this is old covenant behavior, way of dividing up peoples and having holy places and, uh, and secular places or having priesthood and not priests. No, that's, he doesn't do it anymore. He acts differently now. And the people who argue for this, they got their proof texts ready to go to argue how, how, how the Lord does this. We have that up, that slide? Hopefully that's... Re- we got that? Well, I can quote it to you. Uh, yes. Here's some good proof texts. Notice what all these have in common? They're all from Paul, and they're all from Paul's epistles, right? Because that's, people who argue this like, like to draw on Paul, like Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Messiah Yeshua. Or you got Ephesians 2.13-17. through 17. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah, for he is our shalom. The one who made the two into one and broke down the middle wall of separation. Within his flesh, he made powerless the hostility, the law, code of the mitzvot, container regulations. He did this in order to create within himself one new man from two groups, making shalom, and to reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. That's another good one. And there's also Romans 2.11, right? 
For there will be glory, honor, and shalom to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So it's like, okay, well, that pretty much blows what you're saying out of the water, Lewis, right? Because you got Paul saying God's not partial. There's other translations where he says God does not show favoritism. The King James, it says God is not a respecter of persons, right? But here you're saying, here I'm trying to argue that, no, the Lord does treat different people differently. What's really going on here? Let's look further. Because you can take a look at these verses that were up and you can say, okay, there's one new man now. There's no, the dividing wall has been broken down. There's no holy and not holy stuff anymore. He treats everybody the same. And you could quote Paul to that extent. There's a problem with doing that, though. The problem is that, is that you're only quoting half of what Paul wrote. Paul wrote a lot of stuff. <laughs> the same Paul who says there's neither male nor female you read his epistles to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians and the Colossians, he had quite a bit to say about how man and woman, husband and wife were to act in their different roles. He didn't think that those categories had gone away. And the same Paul who says there is neither slave nor free, well, he writes this epistle to a man named Philemon about another man named Onesimus who was a runaway slave who came who encountered Paul. He became to have a belief in the Lord along with Philemon. They were both believers in Yeshua. And he writes a letter saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. You, you two be good brothers in the Lord and, and relate to each other in that context. But he doesn't say that the master-servant relationship has stopped. He's, he's willing to accept that arrangement in that time. Or Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Well, what people do is that if you... There's Romans 9 and 10 and 11. A lot of people, they'll read the book of Romans and they'll read chapters 1 through 8 and they say, oh, I'm done with all the interesting stuff. That was really great. And then they stop. You read 9 and 10 and 11. What do you read? You read about very impassioned yearning that he had for the Jewish people about their fate. And then in Romans 11, he, he, he waxes mystical about what's happening with both Jew and Gentile, about how the Lord has two different tracks and plans for them and how they relate to each other. And it culminates in Romans 11, 21, that the, uh, speaking about the Jewish people, that the gifts and the callings of, of God are irrevocable. And he's saying that there's still, there's still a Jewish identity and there's still a gift and calling that comes from the Lord in that Jewish identity. So Paul, he's not arguing for an end of identity roles, human identity roles, let alone or even hierarchical roles that people can play. What he's arguing for is a relational equality that we all have with the Lord through the Holy Spirit, and we all have it with each other as brothers and sisters. But that relationship is still played out uh, uh, in, the, in the various human roles that we all play day to day. Again, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12? Let's quote some more Pauline scripture, and it kind of helps explain all this. Now you are all Christ's body and individual members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So what Paul is saying here is something that, we, I mean, we can both learn in Scripture, but we also see it observationally in our, in our walk with Messiah. Most of us here cannot, will not, should not do 
extensive outreach in foreign countries or be, be an evangelist or, or do outreach over in those countries. So some of us here can and should. Most of us here do not, or at least most of us most of the time, don't have prophetic utterance. We don't speak prophecy. Some of us can. Now we've, I think, David made us all raise our hands here and who's had a healing, who's had a miracle, and we've a good amount of us raised our hand, but most of us here, we won't ever be the, the direct tool that God uses to, to heal somebody or to, or to cause a miracle in somebody's life. Some of us here can. All of the body of Messiah, corporately, they, we can do all these things and we can do more. But one member of the body can't do all of those things. That's the way the Lord has arranged his universe and that's the way the Lord has arranged the body of Messiah. Why? I mean, it's okay to ask why. It's okay to, you can ask why. It's a fair, it's a fair question. Why? You know, it's a fair question. You can go ahead and ask, 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 ask God the tough questions. Why? Okay. I mean, he, God can take it when you ask the tough question. Just, if you ask God a tough question, don't be surprised if he comes back with you with a tough answer, right? Something you might not want to hear. Why does the Lord do things this way? That brings me to my second point that we need this kind of particularity, this special treatment that some people get and others don't. We need this for our own welfare and even for our own existence. This is the real way to deal with a scandal of particularity, not just try to sweep it under the rug. Now, this passage here in Exodus, this is a good teachable moment as to why, right? Because this anointing oil that was prepared, this is some pretty potent, powerful stuff, right? This this is going to smell pretty strong. What would happen if it were applied everywhere, just like it was applied in the tabernacle? What would happen if it was applied on everybody, just like the priest, it was applied on the, on, on the, the Kohenim priests? You ever, you ever see the Febreze commercials, right? You, you go nose blind to it, right? Or well, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to go nose blind to it, and it, the odor would disappear. You just wouldn't appreciate it anymore because it would be everywhere, and thus it would be nowhere, right? That's one thing that could happen. The other thing that can happen is that you smell this, that you would smell this very strong odor everywhere and you wouldn't smell anything else. And there's other good smells that are out there that you might want to smell. Maybe good barbecue or freshly baked cookies or a nice fresh pizza out of the oven. I hope I'm not making them hungry here, but uh, you can tell I'm a little hungry myself. Uh, but lots of good smells out there you also smell. And so there's an important conceptual philosophical point to be made here. That if everything were the most holy thing that there was, how would any of us exist in a universe like that? Right? I mean, we're not 100% holy all the time. How could we exist in such a, a universe? Israel is God's holy nation. Well, why can't the whole world be Israel then? Well, because if there were, then there would be no Irish or French or Italian or American peoples. It would mean those nations couldn't exist. There would just be only Israel. The tabernacle is a holy place. Well, why can't, the whole, why can't all the buildings be tabernacles? Why can't the whole world be a tabernacle? Well, because then there wouldn't be any other cool buildings like, uh, like a Walmart or a Home Depot or you know, Chuck E. Cheese or a mini golf or something. Wouldn't, you wouldn't get those cool places you could visit. Everything was just a tabernacle. Yeshua, he's a holy person. What would happen if there were only Yeshua. If there were, everyone was Yeshua. If Yeshua were the only person, 
you or I would not exist in such a universe. That, and I'm pretty sure that Yeshua himself would get bored with that kind of arrangement too, being the only person around. That if the universe were just this one big, undifferentiated, coagulated thing, it wouldn't really be much of a universe, would it? And that is, in fact, a, a situation that we see in Scripture of what, in fact, existed. Genesis chapter 1. Bereshit barahim et hashamayim vaetz, vaetz hayita tohu vabohu. When God began forming the heavens and the earth, the earth was tohu vabohu. That's an interesting Hebrew term, a very unique term in, in the Bible. It's commonly translated as without form or void, that it was waste and welter. It was just this indistinct, formless blob boring thing. Back in the day there was a sci-fi movie called The Blob and the, they're like it falls from a meteorite or it was made in some laboratory or something and this blob it starts out small but it starts eating everything in sight that it comes to and it grows and it grows and it grows and it gets really big and it starts to become a real danger and all the townsfolk they have to get together and find out how to stop this blob from eating the whole town and then eating everything in sight. And so well what we basically had in Genesis 1-2 was what would have happened if the blob had, in fact, eaten the whole world? We had this big, coagulated, undifferentiated mess, this tohu vabohu. How does the Lord respond to a universe that looks like this? He starts making separations. He separates light from darkness, the waters above from the waters below, the land from the ocean. He separates out plants and animals from the earth, and he makes man and separates him and puts him in a special enclosure of the Garden of Eden. There's a very interesting word in Genesis 1 that keeps getting used over and over again. Uh, the badal is the root word. Uh, Beit daleth lamed, badal. And you have a lot of different words that are based on it. Hivdil for separation. We get the word havdala from that, for the havdala ceremony that you'll have on, uh, on Saturday evenings to mark out, the, to separate the Shabbat from the rest of the week. In other words, the Lord creates the universe by separating and sorting things out. The same way we walk into our messy room or kid's room or something and everything is tohu vabohu there, that you've got to start separating out and, 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 and cleaning things up. And that's how the Lord works. And it's uh, later used, you see this word used a lot uh, later on in Leviticus. We're coming up to that in our parashari in the book of Leviticus where the Lord makes... Israel separate and holy, and he makes the priests separate and holy. You'll see that word used a lot. So the cre same creative and separating impulse that the Lord uses to make our entire universe, he also uses it to make Israel what it is, and Israel the way it is structured. And it's also the same thing he does with the body of Messiah. Let's continue reading in 1 Corinthians 12. Hopefully, I, this might be... Okay, we can all read that. It's kind of a little... It's small, but we hopefully this will work. Now, there are various kinds of gifts, but the same spirit, the same ruach. There are various kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are various kinds of working, but the same God who works all things and all people. But to each person is given the manifestation of the ruach for the benefit of all. For to one is given the ruach a word of wisdom, to another a word of knowledge according to the same ruach, to another faith by the same ruach, to another gifts of healings by the one ruach, to other 
workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Ruach activates all these things, distributing to each person individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many are one body, so also is Messiah. For in one Ruach we were all immersed into one body, whether Jewish or Greek, slave or free, right? These categories still exist of all. And, and all were made to drink of one Ruach. For the body is not one part, but many. If the foot says, since I am not a hand, I am not part of the body. Is it therefore not part of the body? And if the ear says, since I am not an eye, I am not part of the body. Is it for any reason less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the parts, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But now there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot tell the hand, I don't need you, or in turn the head to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be less important are indispensable. Those parts of the body we think to be less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no such need. Rather, God assembled the body, giving more honor to those who are lacking. So there be no division in the body, but so that the parts may have the same care for one another. If one part suffers, all parts suffer together. If one part is honored, all parts rejoice together. Amen. It's the last scripture there. But, and so this passage helps us kind of sort out what the dissidence here is, why we can say that God is no respecter of persons, but he still treats people differently, or how we can say that God is, he's particular, but this particularity is not partiality, it's not favoritism, what he's, what he's doing. And we can also find out why some people get the perfume and others don't. That we are all parts of the body. We need to be different parts of the body or there would be no body. Or if there were a body, it would be a pretty freakish looking body, right? Different parts of the body get treated differently. Some are out there for everyone to see. Others are doing their job hidden from sight, right? Some, if, when you put on perfume, some parts of the body get the perfume on it and others don't. That if the stomach got jealous and said, I want some of that perfume for myself, and then you tried drinking the perfume and to get it the stomach, that, you, I mean, it, that would not be good, right? If, if the liver or the heart, if you, somebody poured perfume or cologne on the, perf or the liver or the heart, it would probably cause some massive bodily trauma, right? If you end up doing this, probably a pretty good malpractice suit, probably. Uh, I mean, an anointed, good-smelling tabernacle and priesthood, it's a good thing. It's something that all of Israel, it's something all of the world, perhaps, could be refreshed and encouraged by knowing that it exists. But there are other good parts of the world. They're, they are honored and treated differently by the Lord. And this is important. We all have the same Holy Spirit. In that sense, we are all equal before the Lord, equally privileged in that sense to have the same access to the Holy Spirit. We, have, we play different roles, but we have the same Spirit. This is a funny thing about this, this perfume in Exodus 20, I'm sorry, Exodus 30. Uh, if we can get that, that other slide up here, the ingredients of these fragrances were very rare and exotic for the ancient Bronze Age era when the Torah was being written. We know for certain two ingredients, and we can probably make, we can make an educated guess as to what the other ingredients were, but in either case, they were still pretty rare and exotic. Myrrh. Where do you get myrrh from? You actually got this from Ethiopia. 
very far away. You got this from the Horn of Africa. You got this from Arabia. It's, these were gent Gentile countries that were far away from Israel. You had to go all the way down and get them there. Cinnamon, you won't believe this, where cinnamon came from back in the Bronze Age. It came all the way from India. It came from Ceylon. It came from Sri Lanka. It came from an island south of, of India. There were very extensive trade routes back then that, that people were able to transport goods from far away. This, this actually happened in very ancient times when the Torah was being written. The, the kina, the cane, this translated as columnus, possibly sweet flag, that too came from India and possibly from Central Asia, what's present-day Russia it would come from. The kida, if it's what we think it is, it might be Chinese cassia, and this may have come all the way from China, from East India, from Southeast Asia. This all came from very far away. There are some very interesting points to be made by looking at this. One is that these guys were sophisticated. The, the, the Torah was not written by ignorant, parochial, unsophisticated people. There was a whole very complex, sophisticated world underneath the, the, the writing of the Torah. There are a lot of people that like to read the uh, Torah and they like to minimize who the Israelites were or, what the, or, or how, how sophisticated they were. That wasn't the case. This is a very complex world. And the more and more scholarship and archaeology that gets done, the more we understand that there was a lot going on, uh, that this was that there was quite a, a big complex universe that they all lived in. The second thing is this. I mean, there's some interesting theological implications of all this, right? That you have this mitzvah. Israel has this mitzvah. You've got to get these ingredients. You've got to make this anointing oil. And this anointing oil has to go on your tabernacle, on your priests. But in order to, for Israel to keep this mitzvah, Israel needed Ethiopia. Israel needed the Horn of Africa. Israel needed Arabia. Israel needs India. Israel needs China. Israel needs a whole world to give it the stuff it needs to fulfill its mitzvah. And so every part of the world has a role for it to fulfill in the creating of a tabernacle, a dwelling place for the Lord. Amen? That brings me to my third point, that for the good of your own spiritual welfare, for the good of the very universe, the very fabric of the universe you live in, you need to be willing to accept this arrangement by the Lord, that he's going to treat different people differently, that there, there are some goodies that other people get that you will not get, and you need to be on board with this, and that is hard. That may be the hardest thing for people to do. Some of you may know that I and my wife, that we are the proud owners of a two-year-old human female. Uh, and uh, the thing about two-year-old, two-year-olds, especially this one, is that they will see something that we're playing with or doing or something that her older sister is doing or playing with, and she will state very loudly and, her, and emphatically her desire to have that thing. And then she will try to go and get the thing. And then you tell her, no, you can't have that. That's not yours. What does she do? She will scream and cry and throw a tantrum on the floor. That's what a toddler does. That's what we do when you're two years old, right, when you're not mature. Later on in life, you mature and you grow up. And you learn that you don't, when you don't get what you want, you don't scream and cry and throw a tantrum on the floor. No. Instead, you go on Facebook and Twitter and you scream and cry and throw a tantrum there, right? 
And if you're really mature, what you do is that you go on news talk shows and you go before the floor of a legislature or you go classroom uh, university lecture halls or you go in a podium of a political rally and you scream and cry and throw a tantrum about systematic oppression and injustice and ruling class privilege that's keeping you from getting you that really nice shiny thing that you want and you think you should have. And it's a problem. It's always been a problem with people, but it's getting to be a huge, bigger problem nowadays as we enter the end times, these last days, right? That one of the big trends being played out in these last days is that we are seeing a culture that formerly had worship and reverence for Yeshua and the God of Israel, that it's turning to mass apostasy, mass immorality. And one of the ways that this is manifest is that there's this mass rebellion against these God-ordained roles that human being, of human identity that human beings have. Now, one of the things that gets talked about the most among religious circles like ours is the societal normalization of things like homosexuality or gender dysmorphia that's out there. That's just one symptom of a larger problem. Because it's getting to the point where you, you can't not talk about ethnicity and race without somebody calling you a racist that you cannot talk about the difference, the biological and natural differences and roles of the genders without being called a sexist. You cannot talk about your nation and the good and the welfare and the sovereignty and the identity of your nation without somebody calling you a nationalist. And heaven forbid you talk about the nation of Israel because then somebody calls you a apartheid Zionist or something. That it's across the board that there is this growing impulse out there in these last days for people out there to rebel against God-given identity roles, or even fight, fight to abolish the, the very idea and the notion of these identity roles that people are supposed to have, that people just think, want that I can be, be and do and have whatever I want, and you need to oblige me in, in, my, in my desire to do that, or, or else this person will tell you what you need to be and do and have, right? It's a sort of immaturity out there. It's a sort of narcissism, navel-gazing that's going on, out, on in these last days. It's a big, huge impulse out there these days. That impulse has to be resisted. That you need to be able to get to the point where you can obey the Lord. That when the Lord says, no, you can't have that, that's not yours. That you'll say, yes, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you. That you have to have that trust, that faith, that faithfulness, that humility, that restraint to be able to say, yes, Lord, I will stay in the role that you want me to play. It is the hardest thing, maybe the hardest thing for any created creature to do. You have the epistle to Jude. This is one of the next to last book of the Bible right before Revelation. It's kind of mystical writing in Scripture. And Jude wrote that the angels who did not keep their own position of authority but deserted their proper place, he has kept in everlasting shackles under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It's quite a thing he's talking about, that there's this... in long before time and space as we know it, before the throne of God, that there were these powerful, primordial, angelic spirits before the throne of heaven who just simply were not satisfied with the role that God gave them and defined for them. They wanted to do and be and have something else. These entities are now what we call devils. And so you need to not do what they did, but instead accept the role that the Lord has placed on you. Because if you don't, for all, 
for all intents and purposes, you will be a devil. You will become like a devil. You'll be similarly situated before the Lord like a devil will. And you'll have the same kind of fate and the same kind of judgment that a devil will. Do not be a devil. Be a good angel, please. That you need to recognize, first you need to recognize and submit to the lordship of Yeshua in your life. Number one. And that once you do that, you need to be willing to live under the restraints that he sets for you, be it through the teaching of scripture and Torah or through the other authority that's set up for you in the form of family or employers or civil law and authority or congregational leadership or the other structures and the other roles that you play and the other people around you play. What happens if we don't? We get back to Genesis 1-2. We get back to tohu vabohu, a waste and welter of a world a big mess. That's what the big devil, that's what Satan wants to see happen. He wants a world that's tohu vabohu, that erases everything that God has tried to build, tried to build and, and bless us with. But the Lord has different plans. He's working swiftly and soon, even in our days, to establish his kingdom on earth, a kingdom that is one body with many parts, all working together in their proper roles and in obedience to the Lord. And most importantly, working with the same Holy Spirit working through us all. That that is the true sanctifying anointing oil that we all get. That that is the pleasant fragrance that fills the world. Shabbat shalom.